cup of tea tails, meeting places, Oakwood clock, the fingernail torture, and Pete's cellar, 69 to 70, the turning of the decade. Now, whilst my social life had taken over from any actual attempt to learn anything at Roundy School, there was more to it than just youth clubs. Our regular meeting place was often the Oakwood clock. The clock was made in 1904 by Potts and Sons and was designed by Leeming and Leeming. Strange that I now live in the suburb of Leeming in Perth, Western Australia. It was originally made for the Leeds market, but because of alterations at the market it ended up at Oakwood. The clock tower originally had the road running right adjacent to it before the road was moved to its present position and crossroads. We used to meet there on the benches after school, later in the evening before heading to the youth club or to parties. On some evenings we gathered and seemed to spend the entire night there. As I've said before, I was a smoker in these days and I thought I looked cool standing against one of the poles striking a match and a pose. It must have fooled some people, as I was quite popular with the girls. One incident that has stuck with me all my days since. For young readers, you may not know that matches were lit by friction on a sandpaper strip that were the usual method of lighting cigarettes. These were more common than the safety matches, where you had to strike them on the band on the box. These were called safety matches as this prevented them from lighting by mistake. Non-safety matches had a sandpaper strip on the box and they could be lit by friction alone. Swan Vesters was the popular make and the name always intrigued me. To keep the story on task, these could be lit off a variety of surfaces. Being young and stupid, I thought some were cool. The zip on your Levi's was one such surface and a quick flick, flash and flare would impress anyone and could also set your trousers alight if you snapped the match. I had tried this, but hadn't really mastered it to where it didn't just look weird. As I was sitting on the bench below the clock, waiting for friends to arrive, I decided to have a cigarette, and struck the match on the bench surface. The first time it failed to light, so I tried again. Important to know that the bench was old, painted park green, and the wood was cracked and split. Just moving your bottom while sitting on it often resulted in a nasty splinter through the seat of your pants. You're probably guessing where this story is leading. I struck the match against the wood with increased strength. There was a flash, but then the match snapped, and my index finger came into contact with the wood. It slid forcefully in the direction of the strike which was just right for a very large pointy splinter of wood to stab below the nail of my finger and disappear below it. In fact, it went beyond the length of the nail and held my finger firmly to the bench seat. If you've ever hurt yourself in public, then there appears to be an order of response. The first is all sound ceases, quickly followed by a warm flush that passes from below the waist to your head. The pain comes next, but is nonetheless for it. I realised very quickly why bamboo under the fingernails was a popular form of torture, as I was in agony. I seemed to remember jumping up in reflex, which was unfortunate, as the splinter snapped off the bench and remained under my fingernail. 
The final reaction that seems to override all others is whether anyone has seen you. Pride is such an important human quality and embarrassment is almost worse than pain. After trying to impress, the opposite had happened. But luckily for me, it appeared no one noticed the dancing youth under the clock, grasping his hand with tears in his eyes, stifling a scream. I sat down and, despite not wanting to, had a look at what had done. Sitting there, cigarette on the ground, the bench covered in the discarded matchbox and surrounded by unused matches, I grabbed my finger, trying not to scream. I looked at the finger and a spike of wood, half a pencil thick at the wide end, protruded from the end for half an inch. I had to do something, and I knew what it was. The spell. Spelk in Scotland and North England from Old Norse, Spelker, had to come out. I didn't want to do it, but the pain was increasing. I grabbed hold with my left hand and pulled. It didn't want to come out, but I knew I could only stand giving it one try so I gave it an almighty tug. There was a tugging of the flesh surrounding, and I think the pain of extraction was worse than of the insertion. I sobbed to myself, trying to keep the pain in. All the time I stared around to see if anyone had noticed. Somehow they hadn't. The wood was almost an inch long, and the finger throbbed, but the agony began to subside to that of an abscessing tooth. I thought that I'd removed it all, but I wasn't sure. There was nothing else I could do. I gathered my matches up, struck one on the box and lit the cigarette I'd dropped and moaned to myself. Clearly I hadn't extracted all the wood, but the pain was slowly reducing. Over many years small slivers of wood worked their way out from beneath the nail and eventually allowed me to get tweezers on them and pull the piece out. I think it took 20 years for all the wood to come out. You would have thought that I would have learned the perils of smoking and stopped, but unfortunately not. I continued to smoke until the age of 23, but haven't done so since. Apart from the Oakwood Clock, the other meeting place was Pete's cellar. As I've mentioned before, Peter lived at Harehills, and his house was a large three-storey terrace house and had an additional cellar with an external entry. This was handy, as it allowed us to enter without passing through the house. The cellar was only used to store coal in one room at the time, and so Peter got permission to turn it into his lair, den, or whatever word best describes it. He had some old furniture in it, and it had electricity, and we set about decorating it to meet the desires of teenagers in the 1960s. It had bare brick, distempered walls, and Pete collected a range of partially used tins of paint. To ensure there was enough, the paint was mixed together. Now I realised that there was a combination of gloss paint and emulsion, but I didn't know anything about painting and decorating. Pete's parents didn't seem to mind as it hadn't ever been used, and we were clearing it out. The resulting paint colour was a streaky battleship grey, and we set two with gusto. Eventually it was completed and we sat back and admired our handiwork. The fumes were strong, so we quickly evacuated it and went out for the rest of the day. The following night we gathered to inspect the work. It looked okay, in a wild, hippie, bohemian way. But some parts had dried and others were still quite tacky. 
Time would dry it out, we thought. How wrong we were. Even after a couple of years, clothes could be ruined if you brushed up against the walls. I can't say we really cared, but eventually Peter's father had the cellar renovated and turned into a flat. I hate to think what the workmen would have said to each other about our decorating. Now we had Pete's pad, we had to furnish it. Pete's stereo found a home there, and to add to the ambience a couple of Hare Hill's black and white cast iron street signs appeared, and then the obligatory flashing yellow roadwork lights. It looked fantastic. Some hanging fabric just gave it that little something. We even had several Mathieu's rosé bottles with candles in them as lamps. I hadn't thought until now that this added to the potential of burning the place down to the ground. The few of us present sat listening to the Moody Blues' Days of Future Past. King, Crimson and Led Zeppelin too. It was perfect. Peter went upstairs and collected whatever alcohol his parents had, so he could celebrate suitably. There were some schnapps and to this was added some wine and assorted spirits. It was all mixed in a large bowl, and the concoction was christened rocket fuel, for obvious reasons, as one mouthful nearly blew your head off. The night was a great success, even if our heads didn't agree the next morning, and our clothes carried the painted stains as a reminder. However, it was the start of an important era in our lives, and was the origin of many friendships and marriages that have lasted until today. By the way, we learned to hate the flashing roadwork lights, as you couldn't turn them off, or at least we couldn't, and I think we returned them to where we'd collected them from. Similar ones always seemed to be present at student parties wherever you went to one during the 1970s. It was in the cellar that our band had its origin, and many were the gatherings, the fallings in and out of love, the arguments and the great times we had. Life was an adventure, and I still have good friends from these halcyon days. Our parents have mostly gone, and we've become parents and grandparents. We wanted nothing more than not to be like our parents when we were teenagers, but I'm not sure we really became very different. I can't help but appreciate the patience and understanding that was shown to us. Fathers ferried our band equipment to gigs and collected them afterwards. They supported us financially, even when money was scarce, and they seemed not to notice our many scrapes. Great freedom was given at a time when society was undergoing great change. They allowed parties and gatherings that I never allowed my own children to have, and somehow seemed pleased with how we turned out. Wild times. If you enjoy my cup of tea tales, then you might like to know that two books are available. The first, A Cup of Tea Tales, The Early Years, and the second, Another Cup of Tea, The Teenage Years. They're both available on Amazon and on Kindle.